Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. I'm Duarte Geraldino, Deputy Managing Business Editor for Al Jazeera Digital. I'm in for Amy this week. Today is all about your wallet, the economy, and how it's affecting your vote. It's been said time and time again that President Trump's best argument for re-election is the strength of the economy. Here's acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney speaking at a conference back in April. You hate to sound like a cliche, but are you better off than you were four years ago? It's pretty simple, right? It's the economy, Stu, but it's, it's, I think that's easy. Um, people will vote for somebody they don't like if they think it's good for them, and we think that, generally speaking, the economy has been good for everybody. In more recent weeks, though, there's been signs that the economy is weakening. And the trade war with China continues to ratchet up. Most recently, China hit back at the U.S. announcing new tariffs on $75 billion worth of goods. Now, keeping track of what the president thinks of all this has been like watching a game of ping pong this week. Listen to what President Trump told reporters last Sunday. I don't see a recession. I mean, the world is in a recession right now. And uh, although that's too big. The president was singing the same song as his administration officials who appeared on the Sunday shows. Well, I'll tell you what, I sure don't see a recession. We had some blockbuster uh, retail sales consumer numbers uh, towards the back end of last week. Really blockbuster numbers. What I'm seeing uh, looking at all the macro tea leaves is a very strong Trump economy. Then on Monday, the tune changed. The Washington Post reported administration officials were eyeing a payroll tax cut to boost the economy. And on Tuesday, the president confirmed it. Payroll tax is something that we think about, and a lot of people would like to see that. And that very much affects the working, the workers of, of our country, and we have a lot of workers. Only to backtrack on Wednesday. I'm not looking at a tax cut now. We don't need it. We have a strong economy. With all this back and forth, you and I need a little clarity. That's why Nancy Cook is here. She's White House reporter for Politico. Nancy, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So, Nancy, what do you make of these apparently mixed messages about the economy that the Trump administration is sending? Well, I don't really view it as mixed messages. I just view it as one thing that they're saying publicly and another thing that they're saying privately. So the public... uh, public message is basically that the economy is fine, the economy is great, the job numbers are great, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. That's what President Trump and a bunch of his top economic advisors have been saying this week. Privately, though, there is a much different mood in the White House. I think people in the administration, including the president, uh, are well aware of emerging data points that shows that there could be a potential economic slowdown in the White House. And they're starting to get freaked out about it. And they're starting to think through what their options are if there was some sort of recession. And I think President Trump is hyper aware of it because so much of his message for heading into the 2020 election is that he is a master of the economy. You know, the economy is booming. You should reelect me. Forget it. The, you know, if you don't like my Twitter feed or the 
comments that I make, forget all about all that, just vote on the economy. And if the economy takes some sort of downturn, well, then that really blows up that message for him. And he is very, very aware of that. So you're telling me that in public, he's trying to keep a strong face, but privately, he's freaking out. Absolutely. And it's not just him. It's his aides. Uh, I reported this week that Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, told uh, a group of donors at a luncheon on, uh, you know, this past week in Wyoming that, you know, the economy was great. But if there was a recession, it would be moderate and short. And so there is an acknowledgement behind closed doors that this could be something that is coming. We heard about the payroll tax cut idea. Now that seems to be off the table. If some aides and campaign people are actually worried that the economy is slowing, is there a plan or strategy taking shape to counter that slowdown? There's not one single cohesive plan or strategy. I mean, and you could say that for almost any policy in the Trump White House. I think that there are different aides that want different things. Some of them would like to see another tax cut before the election. And that could be something like a payroll tax or that could be an additional cut in the corporate tax rate. That's according to my reporting. Um, You know, that could be indexing capital gains to inflation, which is something that would probably just help wealthy people, the president through cold water on that this week. Um, But there's not really this cohesive plan, and that's part of the problem. And quite frankly, there's not a ton of tools they could use. I think that what businesses would really like to see them do is end this trade uh, standoff with China. A lot of people feel like that is causing a lot of business uncertainty. People don't necessarily want to invest as much money because they're just not sure what's going to happen with China and these tariffs. Um, But that's not something that Trump is willing to do. And that is one of the key tools that he could have to, you know, ward off any potential economic slowdown. So you mentioned China. Now, many of the states that are key to President Trump's reelection are the same places that have been hardest hit by the trade war. The president has said in the past that he just had to take on China. So, Nancy, how are folks in those states, the same ones that President Trump narrowly carried in 2016, how are they doing now that the burden of the trade war is more heavily weighing on them? Well, I think that it's a real concern of the campaign and the Trump White House heading into 2020. You know, farmers have been hurt by the tariffs. Uh, you know, consumers, those are those are uh, increases in the cost of goods that are being passed on to them. And, and then there's just, as I said, a lot of uncertainty about what will actually happen and what is Trump's endgame on this trade war. I don't think anyone really knows. And as I've talked to sources this week, I think Trump is not backing away from this trade war with China at all. But I do think that he's polling, you know, his kitchen cabinet of advisors about, you know, trying to get them to reassure him that this is a good path, because it is a very politically risky one. It's one that hits people in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Minnesota. These are places that the Trump White House really wants to win in uh, 2020, excuse me, Mm -hmm. and places that they narrowly won in 2016, particularly Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And so, you know, it's so interesting to me that Those are the same places that uh, these tariffs could really hit. And it's not getting better anytime soon. At least it doesn't look that way. The tit-for-tat U.S.-China trade war continues with yet another round of tariffs announced by China, this time on $75 billion worth of goods. It was Beijing's response to President Trump's latest tariffs set to kick in in two waves, on September 1st and then another wave on December 15th. So, Nancy, what does this continued escalation tell us? 
Well, I think that what it shows is that China is really not going to back away from this trade war and they are, you know, in it for the long term and they feel comfortable, uh, you know, continuing on this path and continuing to escalate it. You know, you have to remember that China's the government basically runs the economy there. And so as long as the government is willing to keep the trade war going and pump money into the Chinese economy as it sees fit and as it needs it, um, you know, this could last for a while. And it's just interesting to me that, you know, it doesn't seem like either side is backing down. The U.S. is not backing down. These tariffs are set to take place in September. The Chinese are not backing down. And this is one of the key things that so many people in the U.S., be it economic experts, business leaders, would like to see a resolution to. And it just doesn't seem like that's coming anytime soon. So Trump, the G7, a lot is happening this weekend. He's likely to be asked about this, no? Oh, absolutely. I think trade will be a huge part of the discussion with the world leaders. They're meeting uh, in France this weekend. And one thing that is also so interesting to me is that I talked to a bunch of senior administration officials yesterday, and the White House is really planning to go into this G7 sort of guns blazing, and they're going to tell all these other countries that they should follow the U.S. and cut taxes and, uh, you know, rollback regulations. And that's not really a message that all global leaders necessarily want to hear. And critics of the president's would ar- president would argue, you know, that's not necessarily been the best economic policy for the U.S. It's led to uh, much higher deficits. We saw the Congressional Budget Office this week project very high debt and deficits over the next decade, even higher than we previously thought. Um, and so I think that it's not, uh, you know, Critics wouldn't say that this is the best economic policy for everyone, but that's really what Trump is going to say at the G7. He's going to get in a bunch of leaders' faces and say, you know, you should adopt our MAGA policies. These are the best ways. And I think that's part of why he has had such an adversarial relationship at these past type of global economic summits with world leaders. Nancy, here are some key stats. The Bureau of Labor Statistics revised its job numbers down this week. As it turns out, There were 501,000 fewer jobs as of March 2019 than initially reported. Also, the Congressional Budget Office put out a report this week saying that the U.S. budget deficit will be more than $1 trillion by 2020. What are we to make of this? Well, I think that the jobs numbers is a really huge red flag uh, for the Trump White House. You know, a huge part of their argument is that unemployment is so low and, and the job numbers are still quite good. But what these revisions show is that the Trump tax cut had a very one time stimulative shot to the economy. You know, it helped the economy, made people want to spend money and businesses spend money, but it didn't last forever. And that's what these job revisions really make clear. And then there's going to be another revision of job numbers for another period of time. And so I think it will be very telling, you know, what do these job numbers, what were the real job numbers look like in hindsight? And I don't think it paints, it still paints a good picture, but not sort of a skyrocketing picture like the Trump White House would want you to think. So the numbers may not be as good as the Trump White House wanted us to initially think. What about the president's ratings? According to a recent AP NORC poll, the president's approval rating is about 36 percent. And while that's not really strong, it's pretty consistent. What can we take away from that, Nancy? It has been really consistent, and it it shows what the president needs to do to win in 2020. Basically, what he needs to do is keep his base, but he's also going to need to pick off some independent voters, um, you know, be it in the suburbs. I think his 
campaign is hoping to pick off, you know, women, African-Americans, some different groups of people. And so many of these people, particularly suburban women, when they've been polled, have said, we don't like Trump's rhetoric. We think some of his statements are racist. We would like him to get off Twitter. These are all arguments that people make. But we think the state of the economy is good. So maybe we're willing to overlook that. And so if the economy goes south, I think that the president really loses that message. And that could make it really hard to appeal to that bigger swath of people because you can't necessarily win a second term with just a 36% approval rating. Thank you very much, Nancy Cook, White House reporter for Politico. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Let's unpack this data a bit. Andrea Smythe knows the ins and outs of economic policy. She's an assistant professor of economics at Howard University, and she has some insights about the health of the overall economy, the R word, and what a deflated economy could mean for 2020. Currently, the unemployment rate numbers, they look good. We still have positive GDP um, growth going on. And those are the two numbers that tells you if we're in a recession. And as of right now, those are telling us we're not in a recession. However, if we look forward, some of the indicators that would indicate a recession might be coming on, those indicators do not look good. So when you say they don't look good, Professor Smythe, what do you mean? Like, what should we be looking at? One, we can look at things like consumer and business sentiment or confidence, um, right? So consumer spending and business investments are two large parts of GDP. Um, So if consumers are not feeling good about the economy currently, then we might expect spending to go down in the future. Are seeing over the past few weeks, consumer spending has taken a dip. Same with business um, sentiments. The firms are not feeling too great about the future direction of the economy. And so we're worried about business investments going forward as well. So a lot of people don't even want to say the word recession. It's the R word. Given, yeah, the, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> given the fact that there are indicators that suggest that it could happen and some that suggest that our economy is very healthy, what's your best guess when it could happen if it will happen? Recessions can be self-fulfilling prophecies, right? So the more we expect one, the more people are expecting one, the more likely we are to actually get into a recession. If the predictions that we've used in the past come true, then I'm going to say 50-50 just to be safe. So as of right now, we seem fine. 50-50 sounds like a coin toss to me. That's that's what it is, exactly. (laughs) If the coin lands on the wrong side... Who is likely to be hit the worst? You probably can guess what I'm going to say. The people who are already worse off. People barely have their heads above water. And a recession is like a big wave coming at them. And for those people who are just starting to see increases in in wage rates, um, they're just going to fall back into the deep end there. Um, So those people are going to be hurt the worst. You know, the population at the higher end of income distribution, they have enough cushion to weather um, a storm. They'll get hit as well, um, but they have enough cushion to kind of weather the storm and and land on their feet once the economy rebounds. Give me a little bit Uh, more specific. So how do I know if I am, if I'm going to be squashed by this recession or whether I might just be injured walking with a limp? Think of it as they're, they're forecast that a hurricane might be coming, right? If you have a house that has strong foundations, and if we relate that to economic terms, your financial house, house is in good order, meaning that um, you're, you don't have a lot of debt, 
you have some savings to cushion you. Um, normally, we say have six months of savings um, in case you lose a job. And that's likely the first way the recession will affect low-income workers. They're workers, right? So they'll lose their jobs likely. And it might take three to six months or maybe more to find another job. So you need to have that amount of savings. A large majority of the of low-income earners do not have that savings cushion. Um, so, you know, I'm mostly worried about um, those folks at the at the bottom. What about the president's, pre- President Donald Trump, the economy that he inherited? How would you describe it? I think it's the best that we could have asked for, right? Um, we're currently in one of the longest expansions in U.S. history. So it was as good as it's ever been. We've obviously experienced some more expansions there. And even coming off of President Obama's term, you know, we're, we're coming out of, a, of, out of a recession. So certainly there, were, there was still room for improvements, and we have seen improvements since then. But it was, a, it was a strong performing economy, and it has been. Has Trump's policies actually helped the economy or just changed it? It's hard to say if a specific policy helped or hurt. We don't know what would have happened had he done nothing. We can say give credit to a tax cut. We know tax cuts are expansionary, um, so we can attribute some of the growth that we've seen. Um, but even so, for the size of the tax cut, the impact on the economy is not what it should have been for a $1.5 trillion tax cut. We should have been able to get more in terms of um, GDP growth from that. What you're saying, in effect, is given the size of the effort, the result just didn't didn't match the effort. Right. But then you can maybe link that to some policies that are counteracting the positive effects of a tax cut. Like what? Um, So, for example, the tariffs. A tariff is essentially a tax. So on the one hand, we're giving a tax cut to the economy. And on the other hand, we're increasing taxes on the consumers. Um, So there is probably some counteracting effects going on there. Do you think a trade war, which in theory is designed to protect U.S. business interests, could actually backfire and hurt us? We have seen and we expect to see higher prices on the goods that are taxed coming into the country. Um, So in that instance, the consumers will be paying higher, higher prices. And higher prices are not good for consumers. When do you think we will know officially if we are in a recession? So officially we define the recession as negative GDP growth for two consecutive quarters. Um, The problem with that is we measure GDP or we can look at unemployment as well. The problem with those measures, unemployment rate and GDP growth rate, is that there are lagging indicators, meaning that we don't know what happened to unemployment until the, the following month which suggests that we won't know if we're in a recession until we're in a recession. What about the impact of the global economy? If the USA falls into a recession, how does that impact everyone else? Well, there's a a common saying that that when the US sneezes, the world catches a cold, and that would be true in this case. The the world economy is just very integrated. Um, So if spending and investments are going down um, in in the US, then you know, the U.S. buys a lot of goods from overseas, then that's going to cut down on U.S. consumption of foreign goods, um, which means they have to cut back on their investment and employment as well, which which kind of um, leads into slower growth for those companies as well. Professor Smythe, if the economy wobbles a little bit, how might that impact the politics of the country? Generally, a good economy is good for re-election, right, for the incumbent president. Um, and a poor economy usually bodes not so well for 
incumbent president. If I were in the current administration, you know, I would be focusing on just shoring up the economy right now to make sure it looks good come election day. Thank you so much, Professor Andrea Smythe. Thank you. Andrea Smythe, Assistant Professor of Economics at Howard University. While the economy overall is in good shape, some economic indicators point to a slowdown. These are the same indicators that, in the past, have been used to predict recessions. So it's no surprise people are worried. Shouldn't we all worry about a recession? If it doesn't affect me personally this time around, I'm sure it would affect people I know and people I don't, for that matter. Take a look at usdebtclock.org if you really want to scare yourself silly. Listeners from all over the country called in to tell us whether they're worried about a recession and what effect a recession would have on their families. This is Doris from Greenville, South Carolina. Scooter McGee, calling from Meridian, Mississippi. Hi, my name is Jessica, and I am calling from Seattle, Washington. While there are some folks who aren't losing sleep over a potential recession. As far as the recessions, I'm not worried at all. As you know, seen one, seen them all, they come and go, but life goes on. No worries. Some of you are worried about the damage a recession would have on your retirement accounts, especially those of you who have already felt the sting of past recessions. A recession is a genuine concern as we're going into our retirement and cannot afford to lose our investments, which have already taken significant hit in this volatile market. I'm very worried about it, and I do believe that one is coming. Um, I am retired now, so it is especially concerning. Having lived through the 2008 one and losing a lot of my 401k money. So, yes, it's very concerning, and I know it's coming. Some of you called in to tell us that the economic policies enacted by the current administration are already hurting you and your families, that maybe we're already on a downward spiral. I'm not worried about a recession because we are already in one as a family. Trump's tax cuts for the rich did nothing for us. I'm glad to see that he continues to alienate all but the millionaires, neo-Nazis, all of that, and that line Sean Spicer on a dance show. This country has become a laughing stock. Families are also avoiding major purchases, fearing that the market will flop and leave them saddled with bills and loans that they can no longer afford to pay, much like the families whose homes lost so much of their value during the 2008 financial crisis. My husband and I, we really, really want to purchase a house, but we're just afraid that if we buy a house, it might go down in value and we will be stuck with a mortgage that we may not be able to afford. So we've been putting off purchasing a house. We don't know when we'll be able to buy a house, which is really, really frustrating. We would like to buy one soon, but it's just the economy is so up and down the past 10 years. It feels like there's never the right time. And finally, there are some of you that see a recession as a means to an end. I'm a contract worker, so I'm always on the job market. So if a recession affects corporate hiring, then it might scare me. However, if a recession means a Trump defeat for the White House, I might take the trade-off. His re-election and himself scare me more than any recession does. We always want to hear from you. Keep your thoughts and your calls coming. You can leave us a message at 877-8-MY-TAKE. Coming up next, we're going to move from the U.S. economy and this talk of recession to the continent of Africa. 
We're going to hear from two experts about the growth of economies in Africa and how the West continues to underestimate the continent's enormous economic potential. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. I'm Duarte Geraldino from Al Jazeera Digital. I'm filling in for Amy this week. You've probably felt smacked around this week by all of the big economic news coming out of the U.S. at the speed of a tweet. But there is another part of the world undergoing dramatic economic changes that is likely to affect your life. Africa is urbanizing quickly. Projections show the continent will continue to move in that direction. The great cities of the future may be forming right now in Africa. Ethiopia and Rwanda are among the fastest growing economies in the world. According to the UN, the population of Sub-Saharan Africa is projected to double by 2050. But when it comes to understanding the continent's tremendous growth and economic opportunity, well, it's still largely overlooked. When there is an floods or um, the crops fail or some other disaster, that uh, always seems to make the news. That's David Luke. He's the coordinator of the African Trade Policy Center at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. I caught up with David while he was in Ghana to learn about the African Continental Free Trade Area. This is a trade agreement that's supposed to be transformative for Africa because the countries will begin trading as a block. Now, this is a trade deal that covers the whole African continent. It's a, a potential market of 1.2 billion people. Uh, by 2050, that is projected to rise to uh, 2 billion. So it's a sizable market, and um, the Africans have understood that they need to uh, get together, have a good deal that is fair for all countries and that can, they can benefit from. Howard French is a professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and former New York Times Foreign Bureau Chief in Africa and China. We talk with him about how the West has consistently underestimated Africa's role as a partner on the global stage. But before we go there, I asked Howard about what the African Continental Free Trade Area might unlock for the continent. I don't think there's any other way to portray this than as a positive for Africa. You know, Africa is this has this paradox in terms of continental politics in that it is the least developed part of the world, and yet it has a fairly high degree of sophistication in terms of its regional and intra-regional political infrastructure. There are all kinds of regional groupings uh, and arrangements between African countries, a density in terms of these things that far surpasses, for example, East Asia. So this is the big question that hangs over this new continent-wide trading arrangement. So we see that right now all over the place. Right now there's this huge trading war between the U.S. and China. How is that faring in Africa as the U.S. and China battle out for global dominance? China is, you know, the runaway leader in, the, if in, in competition over trade in Africa. The United States is not. The question about the trade war between China and the United States uh, in Africa will, I think, mostly come to be played out in terms of high tech, in terms of 
internet and networking and computer technology around companies like Huawei and which country and which country standards are going to dominate in these areas. Um, and so the United States is trying to freeze Huawei out of the American market and try to persuade Europeans and others not to allow Huawei to build its 5G infrastructure. Huawei already has uh, laid most of the um, cell phone and internet infrastructure in, in African countries. And so it, it remains to be seen if the United States will be able to, to convince African countries to go against Chinese technology. Given that, will the U.S. have to reevaluate its relationship with Africa? The United States has deep rooted long-term kind of sentiments toward Africa. Uh, and the foreign policy establishment of this country is completely uninvested in Africa as a topic and has a kind of chronic inability to understand Africa in terms other than Africa as a humanitarian play. And this creates an inability to see Africa as a place where one can not, not only can do business, but must try to do business. That if you want to do business in the world, in the future, Africa is going to be a, one of the most important places to be doing business. And so, yes, we need to change the way we think about Africa, but there, there's very little sign of a willingness in the way uh, the foreign policy establishment thinks, talks, and writes about Africa, in the way we, our schools teach about Africa, uh, and in the way the public conceives Africa. Howard French is a professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and former New York Times Foreign Bureau Chief in Africa and China. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. I'm Duarte Geraldino, Deputy Managing Business Editor for Al Jazeera Digital. I'm in for Amy this week. So, the man you're meeting next wears a lot of hats. I'm a partner to a great guy that has supported me and a father to a four-year-old young little girl that thinks I'm the greatest dad on earth. I'm the son of two amazing human beings that have fought poverty, domestic violence, and have witnessed a lot in a short period of life. If I'd had to say who is Carlos Cardona, I would say an activist that has taken his experience to hopefully change some policies that are unfair. Carlos lives in New Hampshire. He's a key political figure in the so-called first-in-the-nation state, serving as chairman of the Democratic Party of Laconia. But his story begins in Puerto Rico, where he spent the first 12 years of his life. His father still lives there. Carlos wasn't on the island during Hurricane Maria, but a lot of his family members were. What he saw them go through changed his life in view of politics forever. That's really what reignited my passion to get involved. It's what happened in Puerto Rico, what I actually call a genocide on the Puerto Rican people. My father had spent six months in an ICU because he had contracted a bacteria from drinking bad water because we as a country did not go to Puerto Rico early enough to uh, help the Puerto Rican people to make sure that they had access to clean, safe drinking water and food and access to medication. My dad contracted a bacteria that made it into his nervous system because it took too long for him to get medical care. And how's your dad um, now? Well, as a matter of fact, I spoke to him on the ride here. I speak to him on a daily basis to make sure he's okay and he doesn't need anything. But he was just in the hospital two days ago. He'll have random convulsions and uh, paralysis and 
unfortunately, my stepmother doesn't really know what else to do. I, I wouldn't know what to do other than you call an ambulance and try to get him some medical help. And, you know, medication keeps him pretty stable. But occasionally, uh, my dad is your typical stubborn Puerto Rican man <laughs> that, uh, you know, might not take his medication regularly because he thinks everything is addictive. So <laughs> he's a funny guy. So. What about your uncle? My uncle's a sad story, actually. I grew up very close to him. He was probably one of my favorite uncles growing up. Um, he used to always give us candy when our parents told us no. He was a strong, tall, amazing man. Um, right after the hurricane, I lost contact with my family for quite a long time. And I went about two months without having any contact at all with that side of the island. Um, there was no f cell phone reception. There was nothing. There was no way for them to communicate. Mail wasn't being carried. Um, it was like the apocalypse happening in the island. Finally, when I heard from relatives, I had heard the worst case scenarios that you could possibly hear. Relatives were missing. My father was in the ICU. And at that point, for the first time in my life, there was nothing I could do. And that's when I felt empowered to do, you know, to get back involved in politics. But to talk about my uncle, he, uh, the story that I heard from my aunt, who now lives with us here he became so desperate with the situation that was happening in the island. They had a cheeseburger that they had bought before the hurricane had happened at a drive through at McDonald's that they made last for two weeks. Two weeks of a single cheeseburger? The dollar menu cheeseburger. He had to make two weeks last. And then finally he saw his daughter and his wife struggle so much with hunger that he couldn't bear the thought of it. One day my aunt went to the downtown where most of the help was being provided outside of the poor areas. They walk there, they try to get help, they try to get food, and when she came back, she found her husband hung um, oh my in goodness. the bathroom. It's just so difficult to hear because of the stress after this tragedy in Puerto Rico. That's what you believe pushed them over the edge? A hundred percent. There's no question about it. So that tragedy and your own, you know, your own life as a dad, as a partner, um, and now you are advising politicians that everyone's clamoring for your endorsement. How many of the 2020 Democratic candidates have visited you so far? So I've had 20 visit me. Um, I've met 25 of them. I've had conversations with pretty much every one of them. People are like trying to wonder how did those, this all started. It all started because my, I live in one of the most Republican counties in the state of New Hampshire, where I came within 100 votes of winning my race after recounts. It started because of Puerto Rico. I felt that the only way that we can change something was if we, every Puerto Rican in the United States and mainland got involved, got ran for office and fought and showed Donald Trump that we are not going to stay idle, that we were not going to be put down, and we are definitely not going to let him kill us. So basically, I started catching attention right then. I've won elections before. Right after the election I lost, I took some time to meditate. And then in January, I was approached for, by several members of my community saying, we need you to lead us in whatever way that may be. We really feel that you should be the next Laconia Democratic Party chair, especially when there's going to be a presidential year. And you can do it in a humble way. And I said, I'll be honored to. We talked about it. We figure out how we were going to move forward. And then my first plan was to contact as many presidential candidates as possible and get them to Laconia. Because just like Puerto Rico, I have stories there. There are stories to be told in Laconia, you know, where 50% income disparity rate 
in one of the richest places in New Hampshire, like where you could see million dollar homes in the lake, but right across the street, you have kids that barely have any food. And I served as an AmeriCorps for three years there. And I still remember those stories and I still remember those faces of those kids that I had to break rules, school district rules, where I would have to give them extra food to take home because I knew that that would be the only meal they would have. And I know what hunger looks like. I grew up in a very poor shanty village in Puerto Rico, so I, I didn't want that for them. It's interesting. You draw this distinction, which a lot of people don't. You say the shanty town in Puerto Rico to small town America that's in economic hardship. A lot of folks can't make that distinction, but then here you are. There's no question that that's how Donald Trump won. It's because we failed to make the distinction. We failed to look at these rural communities. We were so focused on big cities in 2016 and even in 2012. You know, you hear politicians talking about what can we do for big cities and integration and all these racial issues that was going on, you know, police officers, all these issues, safety issues. But we forgot rural America. We forgot places like Laconia, New Hampshire. And then you have a guy like Donald Trump, and he comes into our community, which he did visit, and he makes a splash. He shakes the hands of people whose lives are in the verge of between poverty and death, and people who are struggling with drug opioid crisis, and young people that have lack of education because they had to drop out because they had to provide food for their family. You know, you have a guy like this coming to your town with celebrity status, shaking the hands of your neighbors. And that makes a huge difference. People feel that for whatever that's worth, that he's listening, even if he's not. Carlos Cardona has been very successful engaging with presidential hopefuls. He says 20 visited him in New Hampshire. I asked him how he approaches those conversations. Normally, I will reach out to a staff that I may know and I'll say, hey, this is my name. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing in my community. And we would love to host you. Um, and we will make sure that it's run smooth and you don't have any headaches. And normally they like that pitch. They, they, they get pretty happy about the no headaches part because there's a lot involved in making sure that these candidates are safe, that they can speak to a large crowd, attracting a large crowd to come see these candidates. Um, they want to have access to the voters. And so just making all this stuff smooth as possible is what they want to hear and what they want to see. Well, at the same time, they want to talk to people that they haven't seen before. They want to shake hands with people who have stories that, that their policies affect. And so it's my job to basically just get as many Laconia Democrats and Belknap County Democrats out to tell their story and talk to the candidates and change their policies. And some candidates do change their policies when they hear these things. They they implement new ones and it, it does make a big difference and it does shape how, you know, the next election and what America is gonna look like. In New Hampshire, what do you say to people who are actually non-voters? Have you encountered them? Um, I have, um, but there's a level of excitement that it's a little bit easier to pitch to people, hey, get involved. Um, I had two events yesterday at my house for two different campaigns where they asked me if they could host it at my house because the house is large enough. And I said, sure. And then I was talking to people there. And there was a couple that have never voted before that they, they, they have felt that our government has left them behind. And my pitch to them was, listen, it's only going to get worse if we don't get involved. Look at Puerto Rico. I tell them my story and how I got here and that there is hope. You know, I came here to New Hampshire as a homeless youth fell in love and created a family, and now I'm living the American dream. So I tell them that the dream is not dead. There is, there is hope. 
Um, and it, but it's going to be up to each and one of us. And I show them that a little guy like me from nowhere with no name recognition, just making this much change in our state. And, you know, Republicans and Democrats both either respect me or they are cautious because they're like, okay, this is somebody that we need to <laughs> pay attention to one way or the other. And I tell them, you could do the same thing. Um, it just takes hard work and hard work still pays off. So that dream is not dead. Do I think if Donald Trump gets elected again, that dream will be dead? A hundred percent. I think the the American dream is in the cusp of disappearing forever. And stories like mine will not be heard of because this president will try to do everything possible to silence the media, to silence the venues that people have to speak up. And so I think it's super important that you know we elect a Democrat and that we come out in droves to vote. So I'm doing everything in my power to empower people, to show them that, hey, you have access to these candidates too. You will be able to talk to them, tell them your story and change their minds. And this is how you know we shape America. And I am very optimistic that you know we will see a whole different picture in 2020. I mean, Belknap County, I've never seen it as active as I have this year. When do we find out who you're going to choose for the primary? So after receiving so many kind emails from people, I, I had to create a whole new email just to de- be able to get business done. And I appreciate all the calls, all the Twitter messages. I've, my accounts have gone from... 600 followers to I think it's like in the 15,000s now. Um, So many messages that I've received of support that I've decided that it's probably the most important time in my life right now to come out as soon as possible in support of a presidential candidate. The reason being is America is still quite divided as to what the direction of our country is. And I want to be a change maker in my community. I want to be the guy that our community can feel like, wow, we're going somewhere, we're, we're being progressive, we're feeding our kids, we're providing the education we need. And so, as you can imagine from all the attention I've gotten, I've been able to speak in very much detail with a lot of candidates. And last night, after speaking to two campaigns that I've been very close to watching, which is the Bernie Sanders and Warren campaign, um, I've decided that I am going to tell you who I'm going to support today on your on your radio. Who who is it? So uh, my vote and who I'm going to be knocking the most for it will be Bernie Sanders in 2020. I really do think that he's the guy that has been the most consistent. Um, I've seen how much fire he puts in people, how much he has inspired me. Um, I've met with Nina Turner and himself, which are both. No matter what you think of them, one thing you can take from them for sure is how inspirational and passionate they are, which truly represents who I am. I am about making as much change as possible in in the shortest period possible. And they both represent that. Um, If you look at it, and I did not vote for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, I voted for Hillary Clinton, both in the primary and the general election. But I quickly fell in love with him when I started realizing how consistent this guy from little Vermont, a small state, and how much change he has been able to make. It's pretty much what I've been doing. You know, I'm from a little city in Puerto Rico, moved to a little city in New Hampshire, from little New Hampshire, and um, and we're creating so much change. So to me, um, uh, he really truly reflects who I am as a, as a candidate, as a person today. Um, he, the way he speaks about poverty, it's in a way that n- we haven't seen since Martin Luther King. Um, he talks about poverty like, you know, that's who we are. And until we change that in America, 
we will not stop being poor. We will not stop being those people that are struggling. And until we lift them up, our country will not be a better place. Crimes will not stop. People will not stop dying from hunger, from drugs, from prostitution, sex trafficking. Um, so to me, it's super important. And the other thing is, he was made fun of for being a such an environmentalist uh, for, because he said in 2016 during the debates that the biggest threat to America was the climate change. And what are we talking about now today? Cool. Medicare for all and climate change. Those are the biggest conversations we're having. We're talking about poverty. We're, tra- we're talking about criminal justice. And this is exactly what he was pitching many years ago. He, in, in many ways, he, he prophesied what we were going to be talking about today. So it's something that I'm extremely passionate about. And it took me some time to, to, to learn that. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, when I hosted him, I hosted him with an open mind, but not really ever thinking that I was going to publicly endorse him. But honestly, after talking to him so many times and Nina Turner and so many great influential people, I'm proud to be a, a Bernie supporter. And I, I would say 90% of my family is following the path. My partner's still coming to terms on his own, which I respect. And I am going to let you know him do that on his own. And that's how we're going to change America. And that's how we're going to change Donald Trump supporters into Democrats by giving them the space, respecting their opinion, and showing that they matter too in the conversation. Thank you so much, Carlos, for your time and uh, for making your voice known. Thank you. Thank you. Carlos Cardona is the chair of the Laconia Democratic Party. To learn more about him or his story, check out his profile in the Washington Post magazine. That's all for us today. So good being with you, filling in for Amy. Quick shout out to the team. We got the fantastic Vince Fairchild on the board, the dynamic Jay Coward directing the show, and the remarkable Patricia Jacob producing segments. The amazing Paulio Rungo is our digital editor, and the invincible Amber Hall is our lead producer for politics. Finally, the incredible Deirdre Depke is our executive producer. And of course, you can call us at any time at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet at The Takeaway. And I'm Duarte Geraldino, Deputy Managing Business Editor for Al Jazeera Digital, sitting in for Amy this week. You can follow me at Duarte Geraldino on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.